This teaching comes to you from the team at St. Mark's, Darling Point, Sydney. We hope that it blesses you. Good morning. This is the, uh, the, the first reading from Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32. And afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be deliverance, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. Hear the word of the Lord. Second readings from John chapter 8, verses 31 to 59. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we we shall be set free? Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. I am telling you what I have seen in the Father's presence, and you are doing what you have heard from your father. Abraham is our father, they answered. If you were Abraham's children, Jesus said, then you would do what Abraham did. As it is, you are looking for a way to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I have heard from God. Abraham did, uh, did not do such things. You are doing the works of your own father. We are not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. Jesus said to them, If God were your father... You would love me, for I have come here from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. For there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I am telling the truth, why don't you believe me? Whoever belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. The Jews answered him, Aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? 
I am not possessed by a demon, Jesus said Jesus, but I honour my Father and you dishonour me. I am not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Very truly I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. At this they exclaimed, now we know that you are demon-possessed. Abraham died and so did the prophets. Yet you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death? Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus replied, If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not yet 50 years old, they said to him, and you have seen Abraham? Very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. At this they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Hear the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, uh, I've invited Fiona Isaacs to preach to us today. Uh, Fiona has preached to us many times before, and she's a very uh, crucial member of our congregation here, and we've been blessed by her teaching. Um, but today is particularly auspicious because it's 100 years since the Sydney Diocese said uh, that women can preach in Anglican churches, and uh, there's more to that story that Fiona will share as well. And so it's a great occasion to have her preach to us. So welcome, Fiona. Good morning. Thanks, guys. <laughs> it is a real privilege to preach today, uh, not only because the sacred task of opening God's word is a privilege on any day, but because today we celebrate 100 years, as Michael said, since women have been formally allowed to preach in Sydney Anglican churches. And as far as records can tell us, the first woman to preach in Sydney was here at St Mark's Darling Point. Maud Royden in 1928. She, yeah, <laughs> claps for Maud. <laughs> she preached here um, one Sunday and then over the bridge the next, but we were first, so take that, St Thomas's North Sydney. <laughs> Women have been sharing the gospel of Christ since that very first Easter when Mary Magdalene was told to tell the disciples that Jesus is alive. She was the first in a long line of women all around the world who have been speaking the truth about who God is revealed in Jesus Christ. And today's passage is among many things about who should be speaking about God. Who has that right? Who can truly talk, call themselves part of God's family? The Pharisees are challenging Jesus's right to talk about God. So clearly they're using the wrong metrics to decide. It's deeply obvious by the fact they claim Jesus himself is from the devil. But their questions of Jesus, and more so his replies, 
give us an opportunity to consider what are the qualifications for speaking rightly about God. And spoiler, as we explore this passage today, we are going to be reminded that the task of speaking about God is the task of every Christian, that every Christian has the full qualifications or marks of someone who can confidently speak about God. And as we hear some uh, about these four marks to speak about God that this passage illuminates, I have chosen some different readings and quotes from wise and courageous women of church history to help us understand them to help us remember that despite a world that can sometimes seek to minimize, dampen, invalidate, or quieten the voice of women, that God has always used women to speak his word. And more broadly than just gender, the metrics or qualifications that this world uses to determine who is the right person to speak, whether they be of ability, age, class, gender, ethnicity, eloquence, or anything else, are consistently not the metrics that the Bible offers. In fact, the story of the Bible is consistently one of God using the unlikely, the broken, the weak and the hurting to bring about his kingdom and his purpose. So let's read John 8. For those who haven't been here for the past few weeks or those who have been and don't remember, we are in a section of John's Gospel which is all about who Jesus is and particularly who Jesus is as revealed through conflict with the Pharisees, the the legalistic Jewish leaders. When we read this section, it's supposed to read like a genre piece, a courtroom scene of the time with attack and counterattack. I haven't spent much time in courtrooms, I know many of you have, But to me, what this reads like is our modern equivalent of where people cross-examine claims in the public eye, which is, of course, Twitter. Jesus tweets out a message. The Pharisees are all up in the replies. So Jesus has his first salvo. He starts this section by addressing the Jews who had believed in him. That is, Jews who believed in him at one time, but now do no longer. People maybe who'd been attracted to the message of Jesus, but then something distracted them or they lost sight of who Jesus was. It's important to know that in John's gospel, he reserves his strongest condemnation for those who believe and then stop. What Jesus says to these people is that you have to hold on to my teaching to truly be my disciples. That holding on is sometimes translated abiding, It means much more than just philosophical knowledge. It is a relational way of being, where the true disciple exists in who Jesus is, growing in him, in an intimate relationship with him. Jesus says, these people really are my followers, and these people are free. That is, people who are free in the manner by which the Bible defines freedom. The Bible expects that everyone will serve something, So in contrast to freedom, slavery in the Bible is to have an inappropriate master, whether that be a human like Pharaoh or something like money or security. We live our lives in slavery to that which is our highest priority. So when Jesus tells us that the truth sets us free, he is explaining that God offers freedom from those things that previously bound us but he is also offering us freedom for something. That is freedom to be who we were created to be and not just who we were, but who we are becoming, true disciples. 
Jesus offers us freedom from self-interest and freedom to serve God and his kingdom, to be people of light and hope in a dark world. So this is Jesus' opening statement, and the Pharisees are straight back with a response. They say, we've never been slaves of anyone. And they clearly understand that Jesus is giving a spiritual message because obviously Israel have been physical slaves. The history of Israel is defined by the moment from slavery to freedom in the Exodus. So the Pharisees are saying, we've never spiritually been slaves. No one can take our God away from us. Jesus explains that everyone who sins is a slave to sin. They can't truly say they belong in the family because they have the status of a slave. The way the Pharisees are behaving means that although they are Abraham's descendants, they still have the problem that they are rejecting the word of God. They're not living in it, abiding in it. So even though the Pharisees should have the right qualification, in fact, they should know more about other people than their, about their sin because they have the law, they don't, and they're blind to the reality of their condition. So this is qualification one to talk about God rightly. You need to be a person who has been brought from slavery to freedom, from darkness to light, someone who knows that you were dead to sin, but that Christ died for you, and God has brought you to life through his resurrection power. This is the fundamental marker of a Christian, and a Christian is someone who is qualified to talk about God by virtue of their relationship with him. In the third century, Christianity was illegal in the Roman Empire, punishable by death in the gladiatorial arena. Perpetua, who lived in Carthage, converted at the age of 22, and we have her diary from that period right up to her eventual death. When Perpetua was arrested for the crime of being a Christian, her family begged her to reconsider. Her father threatened her and pleaded with her to renounce her faith. Famously, Perpetua is reported to have asked, Father, do you see this vase here? Could it be called by any other name than what it is? No, he replied. She answered, well, neither can I call myself anything other than what I am, a Christian. I don't know if I would have perpetuous certainty in the face of death, but I do know that my unshakable identity in Christ is as firm as hers, not because of anything I've done, but because when I put my faith and trust in Jesus, he transferred me from darkness to light, from slavery to freedom. It's not by my power, strength, or conviction. It's by God's grace. And my status is as certain a fact as any material object or mathematical equation. Then in verse 39, Jesus gives us insight into what we might see as the second qualification. That is, to be someone who talks about God rightly, you have to act on the basis of qualification one. If you are Abraham's children, Jesus says to the Pharisees, you would do what Abraham did. Jesus reminds us that faith is proved in works and that Abraham was pious, faithful, hospitable, and righteous. In the time of Jesus, people believed that not only did you inherit your looks from your parents, but also their behavior. And so your actions reveal your identity, not only as you, but who you belong to as well. And so in order to be people of God, Jesus says, you have to act like it. 
When I was considering women who can help us understand this, I thought of Morella, who gave up all her wealth to live in a cave. Um, of course, Florence Nightingale, who in the Victorian era gave up a life of privilege to serve as a nurse. But I can't think of a better illustration of living out the love of Christ than Catherine of Siena, who lived in the 14th century in, you may have guessed, Siena, Italy. She committed her life to God's service at the age of seven years old. And she particularly focused on serving the poorest of the poor. With the black death raging around her, she didn't have to go far to find people who needed help. But even so, every day, she would go to the dungeons where the most hardened criminals were chained up so that she could care for them. But Catherine was not content with just serving. She was so upset with herself that she found physical revulsion in caring for the ill that she forced herself to drink a cup of pus that had been drained from the sores of one of the women she was caring for. To say we belong to Jesus, we have to live like it. We probably don't have to drink pus, but <laughs> Catherine of Siena can challenge us to where we're apt to consider our own comfort more highly than we should. Can people see that we're children of God by the way that we act? Verse 41, the Pharisees are struggling to understand. They say they only have one father, and that is God. And so to keep to our Twitter analogy, here Jesus drops a thread. And he gives us the third qualification for speaking about God. Hear from Jesus who he is and accept him on his terms. The Pharisees are unable to understand what Jesus is saying because they refuse to hear him. They refuse to change what they believe to be true. One can assume that it would, because it would have to involve a shift in their own self-identity, self-worth, and self-importance. They would rather be slaves to their own sense of control and power than free at the cost of giving up their pride. Jesus has strong words for them in this. He calls them children of the devil, which is harsh. Uh, in other parts of the gospel, Jesus invites investigation, doubt, and debate. So why does he seem so intent on shutting these Pharisees down? I think it's because we can see that they don't want to know who he is. There's no honest inquiry here. In fact, this is probably where the debate becomes the most like Twitter, people not actually seeking to learn and understand, but rather to confirm what they believed in the first place and tear down people who disagree with them. In John's Gospel, the author is constantly drawing a distinction between things of God's kingdom, light, freedom, hope, life, and things that are not, darkness, slavery, despair, and death. John wants us to see there is no middle ground. Either we belong to God's kingdom and experience his freedom, we live in the light, or we do not. There is only light and darkness. So these Pharisees, when confronted with Jesus, have all the tools to see who he is and instead choose not to. Jesus says, you know I am sinless. If you could indict me on any sin, you would do that, but you cannot. So in the face of overwhelming evidence that Jesus is from God, the Pharisees choose instead not only not to believe in him, but seek to discredit him and teach others to do the same. Eventually, they will seek to kill him. So this is why Jesus uses such strong language in his condemnation of them, because they refuse to accept the truth and lead others into lives. 
It is, of course, the great irony that by the means that they seek to pour the most hate on Jesus is the means by which God offers the greatest love to the world. Jesus tells us to take him and his word seriously and to do it on his terms. It reminds me of Margaret Fell Fox, who lived in the 17th century England. Her husband was arrested for being a Quaker. Uh, England was not great at religious toleration at this point. Not sure what they're great at at the moment, but um, (laughs) Margaret secured his release, uh, but then she herself was arrested and she refused to swear an oath to the king. So she had to stay in jail. We have her words. She said, I love, own and honour the king and desire his peace and welfare to live a peaceable, quiet and godly life under his government, according to the scriptures. As for the oath itself, Jesus Christ, the King of kings, hath commanded me not to swear at all, neither by heaven, nor by earth, nor by any other oath. Fel Fox is most famous today for her pamphlet, Women Speaking Justified, in which she defended the right of women to speak the gospel. And I think her willingness to go to prison, something she did more than once in her life, because her determination to take God's word seriously gives us all a real challenge. Are we willing to hear Jesus, to take him seriously, to be changed by him at the expense of our own comfort? Where are we like the Pharisees, refusing to acknowledge who Jesus is for the reason that it's not convenient for us? And indeed, the Pharisees still don't listen to Jesus. They're in verse 48. We don't have any deep meditation or self-reflection. They just go on the counterattack. Jesus must be possessed by a demon or be a Samaritan, which for the Pharisees means someone who worships God in the false or incorrect manner. Jesus only responds to the demon charge, maybe because he surpasses categories of Jew or Samaritan. He says, I don't have a demon. In fact, everything I am doing is for God and for his glory. One of the reasons you know I am from God is that I don't bring attention or glory for myself, but only for the God who sent me. And God in turn glorifies Jesus, so that the conclusion is that those who do not honor Jesus are not children of God. There is no way to claim to belong to God without honoring Jesus. Which brings us to qualification four, those who speak of God rightly do it for his glory. The major way we can tell if someone is an appropriate person to speak about God is their intention. Is it for themselves or for the glory of God? During the Reformation in Germany, Katharina Schutzel was a prominent woman who was involved not only in public debate and intellectual life, but she cared for thousands of refugees made homeless by the Peasants' War. She wrote tracts, she edited a hymnal, she preached. But many were sceptical and deeply antagonistic to her public ministry. To them she wrote, I answer... Do you not know, however, that Paul also says in Galatians 3, in Christ there is neither man nor woman? And God in the prophet Joel says in chapter 2, I will pour my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and daughters will prophesy. And you know that Zechariah became dumb so that Elizabeth blessed the Virgin Mary. So may you also receive me in good part. I do not seek to be heard as if I were Elizabeth or John the Baptist or Nathan the prophet who pointed out his sin to David or as any of the prophets, but only as the donkey from whom the false prophet Balaam heard. For I seek nothing 
other that we might be saved together with each other. Katerina spoke the gospel with the hope that people might be saved so that God might be brought glory and his love be made known. We could do well to learn from her. In the final part of our passage, Jesus contrasts his existence with Abraham's existence. He is the word who has existed from the beginning. Whilst Abraham came into being, Jesus is the one through whom time was created. And the Pharisees unwilling to accept the truth, go to stone him. But Jesus is in control. He's not going to die before his time, and he slips away unseen. In Deuteronomy, the punishment prescribed for those who would leave Israel astray is death. So the Pharisees are acting with that in mind, although it is, of course, them who are leading God's people astray. And yet, Jesus does not come to kill and destroy, but so that we might have life and have it to the full. He did not come to judge the world, but to save the world through him. This fundamentally is the gospel that we preach, that although we deserve death, instead we are given life. And the four qualifications to tell of that, which we might draw from this passage are, do we know it to be true? Do we know our status? Are we confident that we are people who have been transferred from darkness to light, enslavement to freedom, slave to son and daughter? And two, do we live this out in our lives? Thirdly, do we let Jesus dictate the term of the relationship, understanding from him who he is? And finally, do we speak of God only for his glory? We know as a general trend when applying for jobs that men will go for a job if they meet only half the criteria and women will feel they need to make, have more than the stated qualifications in order to apply which might be why we hear a lot more sermons from men than women. But looking at this list, it's a list that those who have in Christ can claim confidently, at the same time as recognising that they fall deeply short in them. But we can all embrace our inner straight white man and confidently embrace the job, even whilst we know we have more to learn. Remember I said that Jesus wants us to abide in him to hold to his teaching. It's an image that's co-participatory. It's us choosing to remain in Jesus, even as he holds fast to us. It is because Jesus' death and resurrection, it's because his spirit is poured out on all of us that we can speak rightly of God, even when we still struggle with sin. And so I wonder if it's unhelpful to consider these four points to be qualifications because we know we'll never truly meet any of them. So maybe more we can use them as criteria to start uh, to, like review metrics, to help us see how we're doing and where we might want to be growing. To encourage us to speak of God more rightly, to ensure that when we do so, we're inviting people to see his kingdom. Moreover, they can help us to find who we should be allowing to speak God's truth into our lives, whose life and words are in congruity with the faith that they profess. How do they lift our eyes to Jesus when they speak? Which comes with the second question of who are we excluding from the task of speaking about God based on some arbitrary category that has nothing to do with their faith, walk with God, or life of discipleship. Another great Reformation writer, Frenchwoman Marie Dentere, once wrote, 
that if God has given grace to some good women, revealing to them by his holy scriptures something holy and good, should they hesitate to write, speak, and declare it to one another because of defamers of the truth? Ah, it would be bold to try and stop them. It would be too foolish for us to hide the talent that God has given us. God will give grace to us to persevere until the end. And I think we can reword that quote a little, and it's worth hearing twice. So here it comes with a few words changed. If God has given grace to us, revealing to us by his holy scriptures something holy and good, should we hesitate to write, speak, and declare it to one another because of defamers of the truth? Ah, it would be bold to try and stop us, and it would be foolish for us to hide the talent that God has given. God will give us grace to persevere until the end. How could we possibly stay silent about the gospel we have given? For we know the truth, and the truth has set us free. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at www.stmarksdp.org to subscribe to our new episodes, browse more resources and find more information about the community of St Mark's.